Okay, Genesis 11, verses 10 to 32. Following the dispersion which occurred at Babel, the Bible contains no further information about the history of man for the next 200 years except for the genealogical record which we find in Genesis 11, verses 10 to 32. Although we know that various, the various family groups now with their own distinct languages were migrating and they were developing nations and cultures and even races, yet the word of God remains silent about any specific events in the world or in individuals' lives during the 200 years until we get to the immediate family members of Abraham at the end of this chapter. Perhaps this is because even after God's intervention at Babel, when he gave man yet another chance at a new beginning so as to return to him, man grew even more and more polluted until the idolatry of Babylon was absolutely prevalent everywhere. Rather than allowing the estrangement, their estrangement from Nimrod's influence and their separation and isolation from a centralized society to bring them to God for his help and his guidance and his strength, the dispersed family groups turned to the idolatry. See, they was the opposite effect from what it was supposed to have on them, but they instead turned to the idolatry which they had allowed to take root in their hearts in Babel. Moral corruption followed in the trail of their idolatry until the degenerate condition of man in the 200 years following the Tower of Babel incident resembled that of the days right prior to the flood. Tragically, mankind's spiritual decline even affected the messianic line. And that's always a danger, isn't it? And we're going to see that this morning as we look at the idolatry even in the family of Abraham. Yet God had made a promise, hadn't he? He had promised Noah and all of his perpetual generations that he would never again destroy all flesh with a flood. But yet, at the same time, the world had to be delivered. Although it didn't deserve such deliverance, yet the world had to be delivered from the corruption which had once again engulfed it. It had to be delivered so that the Messiah could come and fulfill God's words. So God, in his amazing grace, initiated a new area of concentration which would ultimately have a positive effect on the nations. He was going to move away from dealing with mankind as a whole, and instead he was going to sovereignly call out and prepare one special people to become his instruments of witness to all other peoples. He was going to choose one man who was a descendant in the messianic line of Shem, and from him he would create a new people and a new nation. They would be the Jews, and the nation, of course, would be the nation of Israel. And they were going to be uniquely related to the Lord God himself. It was going to be through this new people that God would send the promised seed of the woman, as he had promised back in Genesis 3.15. And it would be through this new nation that God would give the world his special revelation. 
in written form. And that, of course, is the Bible, a book which would tell the world all they need to know about the coming Redeemer, the promised seed of the woman, the Savior, and his one and only way of salvation. So salvation was to be of the Jews, as the Lord Jesus himself had told the Samaritan woman at the well. Not only would God preserve the line of the promised Savior, even when some in that line themselves had turned to the worship of idols, he would still fulfill his word, but he would also preserve the written record of that line, the messianic line. After all, with God, a promise is a what? promise. A promise is a promise, and he cannot and he will not fail in even one of his promises, much less in one so important as the promised seed of the woman, the coming Savior. So although there seems to really be nothing of much interest in this latter section of Genesis chapter 11, at least until we get to the names of Abraham and his family members at the end of the chapter, yet this this section of Genesis 11, as you probably know, is important because everything in Scripture is important. It doesn't look like it's important, but it is important because it gives us the patriarchal genealogy from Shem to Abraham. And remember, this is important because this is the very genealogical tree or record of the Lord Jesus Christ himself, the promised seed of the woman. The title for our lesson is Preservation of the Promise. And Genesis 11 is a very easy chapter to divide for an outline because it really divides itself very neatly for us. We've already seen the first nine verses had to deal had to do with the Tower of Babel. Then when you look at verses or look at verse 10, it starts out by telling us these are the generations of Shem. Notice that? Now look at verse 27. It says the now these are the generations of Terah. So there's our divisions. First nine verses, Tower of Babel. Then we've got verses 10 to 26, the generations of Shem. And verses 27 to the end of the chapter, 32, the generations of Terah. So that's our outline. Generations of Shem, generations of Terah. And we will begin by looking at the generations of Shem. So I'm going to read through verse 10 all the way through 26. It says, These are the generations of Shem. Shem was an hundred years old and begat Arphaxad two years after the flood. And Shem lived after he begat Arphaxad five hundred years and begat sons and daughters. And Arphaxad lived five and thirty years and begat Selah. Notice he was only thirty-five years old when he had his son. And Arphaxad lived... After he begat Selah, 403 years, and begat sons and daughters. And Selah lived 30 years, and begat Eber. And Selah lived after he begat Eber, 403 years, and begat sons and daughters. And Eber lived four and 30 years, and begat Peleg. And Eber lived after he begat Peleg, 430 years, and begat sons and daughters. And Peleg lived 30 years, and begat Reu. And Peleg lived after he begat Reu 209 years and begat sons and daughters. And Reu lived two and thirty years and begat Sarag. And Reu lived after he begat Sarag 207 years and begat sons and daughters. And Sarag lived thirty years and begat Nahor. And Sarag lived after he begat Nahor 200 years and begat sons and daughters. And Nahor lived nine and twenty years and begat Terah. 
And Nahor lived after he begat Terah 119 years and begat sons and daughters. And Terah lived 70 years and begat Abram, Nahor, and Haran. Not exactly the kind of passage that you spend a lot of time in when you're reading through the scripture. But there really is some interesting things here. Because the the line of Shem is so important, being the messianic line, the book of Genesis actually presents us with two records of Shem's descendants. The first one, remember, was back in chapter 10 from verse 21 to 29. And in that record of Shem's descendants, we learned the names of all five of Shem's sons. Remember, there was Elam, Asher, Arphaxad, Lud, and Aram. And then we learned the names of five of his grandsons, Uz, Hull, Gether, Mash, and Selah. The record then presented to us the descendants of one grandson, the descendants of Selah, who begat Eber. Remember, he was the man from whom the word Hebrew has come. And Eber had two sons named Peleg and Joktan. And then we ended that record of Shem's descendants by looking at 13 of Joktan's sons. Remember, he was very prolific. And not one of Peleg's descendants was mentioned. Now, in Genesis 11, the record picks up with who do you think? Peleg, exactly. Peleg's descendants are of vital importance because they were the ones who carried on the messianic line. Now, it's interesting to notice that the genealogy of Genesis chapter 5, remember, that was the record of the Sethites. Seth was the son of Adam, and in Genesis 5, we had the, the record of the good guys, the Sethites versus the Canaanites that we also had had. Well, in Genesis 5, um, that record took us from Adam to Noah. And the genealogy, which I just read in Genesis 11, carries us from Noah's son, Shem, down to Abraham. Both lists cover exactly 10 generations, which is interesting. And both lists and with the mentioning of three sons. In this list, we mentioned, or we ended with Shem, Ham, and Japheth. And in this list, we end with the three sons, Abraham, Nahor, and Haran. Also, both of these genealogical records of 5 and 11 tell us that each father also had other sons and daughters, even though they are not mentioned. Well, there are some, those are some comparisons that are alike. Then there are some definite differences between these two records as well. In Genesis 11, we do not read the phrase, and he died, and he died, which, remember, was repeated so often in chapter 5 in that genealogical record, and he died, and he died, and he died. We don't hear that at all in Genesis chapter 11, although, of course, we know they died. Um, In Genesis 11, rather, the focus seems to be on the age of the men when they fathered the son which would carry on the messianic line. And that's, no, that's not what I've put. I've put the death ages. I haven't put the age of their son. But the focus seems to be on their age when they gave birth to the son which would carry on the messianic line. There are no ages really given for the man's death except Terah. 
Terah was Abraham's father. If you look at the very last verse of chapter 11, it tells us Terah's age when he died. He was 205 years old. But that's the only one that tells us how old he actually was when he died. However, the ages of each man's death can still be figured very easily by adding together his age at the time he gave birth to the the son that would carry on the messianic line and then the years that he lived after the birth of that son and that's what's given to us for example shem we are told was 100 years old when he gave birth to arphaxad and then we are told he lived another 500 years after arphaxad so how old was shem when he died that's not very hard you add 100 and 500 and you get 600 years old one very significant difference in the two ancestral records of um, Noah in Genesis 5 and Abraham in Genesis 11 are that the longevity rate of man greatly began to decline after the flood. Noah, remember Noah, lived to be 950 years, which was not very unusual at all for those who had been born before the time of the flood. There... That from Adam to Noah, the average age of man was 912 years. That was the average. Now, I didn't count Enoch because, you know, he didn't live to his full extent. He was raptured at the age of 365. But otherwise, the average age was 912. But those names which we now find recorded in Genesis 11, they did not live nearly as long as the pre-flood people. Even Shem, who was 97 years old at the time of the flood, he only lived to be 600, which was, I mean, that sounds really old, but yet that was three and a half centuries less than his father had lived. And Shem's son, Arphaxid, look at him. He only lived to be 438 years old, which was a big, you know, decrease there because he had not been born before the flood. Remember, Shem had a little advantage because he was born before the flood and then went on to live after the flood as well. But then the next son, 433, and the next one, Eber, 464. Well, I stopped with Peleg because at the time Peleg was born, remember what his name means? Division. At the time of his birth, we had the dispersion at Babel. So let's just take these four men, Shem, Arphaxid, Selah, and Eber. We could call them post-flood pre-Babel men. <laughs> it almost sounds like post-millennial pre-tribulational, but they were post-flood pre-Babel men, and their average age was 483. I mean, that's a big jump after the flood from 912 to 483. But look at what happens after Babel to their ages. Peleg was 239, Ryu 239, Sarag 230, Nahor, oh my goodness, look how young he was when he died. <laughs> it was only 148 of him, he was still a child. And then Terah was 205, Abraham was 175. I averaged those ages in, and the average age dipped down to 206. So what happened? Well, we've already talked about what we know happened between, <clears throat> I mean, after the flood, why the age dropped down. And that would be because of the fact that that radiation filtering vapor canopy 
had been dissipated and the ultraviolet rays of the sun, um, you know, really caused men to age much faster. And then there would have been the increase in body cell mutations and the fact that there was a much more rugged environment in which to live and inadequate nourishment in the food and inbreeding and a greater stress of living. All of those things together caused the the age to drop after the flood. But then again, we had after the... um, the Tower of Babel, the age drops again. And Dr. Henry Morris said that this is probably further because of further inbreeding. You know, the groups of people had, because of their languages, were now separated and there was a lot of inbreeding, which eventually brought about the physical characteristics we call different races. The word race is never even in the Bible. Did you know that? never talks about races, but we call them races, even though they're just really different biological characteristics based on the genetics and inbreeding at the beginning and the dominant genes and all that sort of thing. <clears throat> but the close inbreeding and then uh, the aggravated by more stress and all that just caused the... And, of course, then... Man is, getting, man is getting further and further from the time when he was perfect. Adam was a perfect man, but sin is setting in. And so the bottom line, really, for the great decrease in longevity is that people were beginning to feel in their own human bodies the consequences of sin. As mankind failed each new beginning which had been given to him by God, his lifespan grew shorter and shorter until he brought, God brought, you know, he had to kind of put a limit on it or we would probably not even, any of us, be alive today if he, if that rate kept up, right? <laughs> We'd all die at childbirth. But uh, he finally put a uh, limit on it. And what is that limit according to Psalm 90 verse 10? Right, three score and ten, which is 70. Some of you are living on borrowed time, right, Dottie? (laughs) Actually, I think right now if you were to take the average death age in the whole world, I mean, it might be 70 for America. I think actually it's extending even because of medicine and everything. You, You hear of more and more people living older. But if you were to take the whole world, and average it, I think it would be down in the 30s easily because people in Africa and and some of these third world countries, so many of them don't even make it into their 30s. It's really sad. Well, in Genesis 11.10, we find that Shem was 100 years old when he gave birth to Arphaxad, which was only two years after the flood. Now, that would mean, as we just said a little while ago, that Shem was 97 years old at the time of the flood, and how old would he have been at the end of the flood? They were in the boat for a whole year, so he would have been 98 when the flood ended. Two years later, when he was 100, his wife gave birth to Arphaxad. If the birth order of Shem's five sons, which we have listed in Genesis 10:22, if that birth order is correct, then we find out that Mrs. Shem <laughs> was very busy because she had Elam and Asher in the two years preceding the birth of our Faxon. You know, perhaps she even became pregnant 
while she was still on the ark. And then when they got off at Ararat, she had her firstborn, Elam. The next year she had uh, Asher. And then the next year she had Shem. In Genesis 11, 11, we learn that Shem lived another 500 years after begetting Arphaxad and that he also had other sons, which we do know about because they are listed in Genesis 10:22, and he had other daughters. Now we're told that he also had other daughters, but of course their names are not listed for us. Well, when Arphaxad was only 35 years old, he begat Selah, who was the next son to carry on the messianic line of Shem. And then it says Arphaxad lived another 403 years after the birth of Selah. So he was 438 years when he died. That was a great big drop from his grandfather, Noah, who lived to be 950 years old. And it was even a big drop from his father, Shem, who lived to be 600. Since the people were living less years, it seems like God compensated that fact by giving them children at younger ages. I mean, now they almost sound normal. I I wrote the ages of uh, how old these men were when they had their their child, their son that would carry on the messianic line. Our Faxid was 35. We've got Selah was 30. Eber was 34. I mean, this is nothing really strange, is it? Um, Peleg was 30. Ryu was 32. Sarag was 30. Nahor was 29. And Terah, oh my goodness, he was an old man. He was 70 when he begat Abram or Nahor or Haran, whichever one was born first. 70. But uh, that sounds a lot more like our day and age. In Genesis 11:18, well, never mind. I'm not going to read all that because we just really talked about their ages. Okay, then we read that Terah, the son of Nahor, was 70 years old, apparently at the time of his oldest son's birth. Now, we don't know, as I just mentioned, we don't know the birth order of his three sons. We know that they're listed there as Abram... Nahor and Haran, but it could be that Abram was listed first. Why? Because he was the son who would carry on the messianic line, just as uh, Shem had been mentioned first as a son of Noah, even though he, we know he wasn't the oldest. Actually, if you work out Abram's, um, some of the statistics that we are given about Abram in the rest of scripture for example look at chapter 12 verse 4 it tells us that Abram was 75 years old when he departed out of Haran well if he was 75 years old when he left Haran and then you look up at the last verse of chapter 11 and you find out that Terah was 205 years old that's his father Terah when he died And then you have to piece together something else over in Acts 7, verse 4. Stephen was talking, you know, Stephen, who got stoned and Saul was watching. Here's what he said. Men, brethren, and fathers, hearken. The God of glory appeared unto our father Abraham when he was in Mesopotamia before he dwelt in Haran. And said unto him, Get thee out of thy country and from thy kindred and come into the land which I shall show thee. Then came he out of the land of the Chaldeans and dwelt in Haran. And from thence, when his father was dead, he removed him into his land wherein ye now dwell. Okay, if you piece together those three pieces of scripture, you find out that if Abraham indeed left Haran at the time his father died, 
which was when his father was 205 years old and Abraham was 75, this means that Terah had to have been 130 years old when he gave birth to Abram, Abraham. So this would mean that Abraham is not the oldest son and that he is merely listed first because he is the son to carry on the messianic line. However, saying that, let me also say this. If you look at Stephen's speech and consider that maybe when he said that Abraham left Haran when his father was dead, if you take that to mean that his father was dead, spiritually speaking, that God saw or Abraham saw that his father was never going to go on for the Lord, that he was going to stay there and die there. If Abraham saw that finally his father was spiritually dead, dead to the things of the Lord, and that's when he left Haran, then it could be that Abram is the oldest son. It could be. If indeed Abram was the oldest son of Terah, this is very interesting, if he was. Because it means that God, for some reason, waited until Terah was 70 to give birth to his son, Abram. And we know that Abram is the father of the Jews, and we've learned how important the number 70 is as far as Israel is concerned. So that would be very interesting, especially in light of the fact that the seven preceding generations gave birth to their son at such early ages, all in the 30s. One was even 29. And then all of a sudden, Terah gives birth to his first son at the age of 70. The other thing which would make it very interesting if Abram was indeed the firstborn son of Terah, would be that this would mean Abram was born in the year 1948. Does that sink in? If you count the year of Adam's creation as year zero and go from there, the Bible gives us enough, it gives us all that we need to, to know to count the years of every man's birth. That's why we could actually count and tell you the year of the flood was 1656. We could tell you the year of the Tower of Babel, all based on the ages of these men. When you add everything that you need to add, you can actually get the year. So this, if Abram was the oldest son of his father, he was born in the year 1948, which to me, is fascinating because that was the year that Israel was reborn as a nation, 1948. Yes, 1948 A.D. Yeah, not the same year, no. A.D., 1948 A.D. was the year that Israel was reborn as a nation. Anyway, you take that for what it's worth, but I thought it was very interesting. Well, other than the little bit of information we know about Shem, who was the first father of the Genesis 11 genealogy, and the little bit of information that we know about Terah, who is the last father in this genealogy, we know virtually nothing about any of the other men which are listed in this chapter, except for the meaning or the significance of some of their names, such as Peleg, we know means division, and Eber, we know, was the the man from whom we get the word Hebrew. 
We can suppose that some of these men were indeed godly, but we can also assume that many of them became affected by the humanism and the man-made religions of their days. And this possibly could be why nothing much is said about them. Could they have failed to contribute anything significant for God? It, it would appear that there was indeed an evil influence upon the messianic line of Shem because by the time the lineage reached Terah, we find a man who was an idol worshiper. And just think, I got to thinking about how the post-flood, post-Babel degeneracy of man must have grieved the heart of Noah and, of course, God himself. According to the records that we have in the Bible, Noah's life would have actually overlapped Terah's life. That's how long this man lived, <laughs> another 350 years. So he was alive even at the time of Terah. And if Abram was the firstborn son, guess what? Noah was still alive when Abram was born. Now that means that Noah would have re-experienced much of the exact frustrations that he had encountered before the flood. You know, the great moral and spiritual degeneracy and nobody listening to the preaching of righteousness. So just think about that. Poor Noah, what a life that man had after all he had encountered in the flood. And here, here they go again, the same old thing. Just as he had tried to warn men about the coming wrath of God before the flood, he must have tried to warn them after the flood and again after the Tower of Babel of the consequences of disobedience. I'm sure he spent those last 350 years telling people... Don't you know what happened? I'm the only, my sons and I are the only survivors. Can't you learn lessons from man's past failures? Can't you learn from history? And I, I mean, he must have been extremely frustrated. So no wonder God had to assure Noah that he would never, ever again send a worldwide flood to destroy all flesh. Otherwise, poor Noah would have never gotten any rest. I, you know, if God hadn't given him that rainbow and that covenant that he would never again do it, I'm sure Noah would have just climbed right back up there on Mount Ararat and got right back into his <laughs> ark. But God had given him a promise, and he knew that that promise was, was good because God was the one who gave it. So anyway, those are the generations of Shem. In our next section now, chapter, um, or verses 10 to 26... We're going to look at the generations of Terah. It's interesting. What we could do, actually, is call this first section, the generations of Shem, we could call that the family tree of Abram. And now this next section, we could call the family ties of Abram or Abraham. Okay, so let's look now at uh, verses 27 to 32, the generations of Terah. It says, now these are the generations of Terah. Terah begat Abram, Nahor, and Haran. And Haran begat, begat Lot. And Haran died before his father Terah in the land of his nativity, in Ur of the Chaldees. And Abram and Nahor took them wives. The name of Abram's wife was Sarai, and the name of Nahor's wife, Milcah, 
the daughter of Haran, Haran, the father of Milcah and the father of Iscah. But Sarai was barren. She had no child. And Terah took Abram his son, and Lot the son of Haran, his son's son, and Sarai his daughter-in-law, his son Abram's wife, and they went forth with them from Ur of the Chaldees to go into the land of Canaan. And they came unto Haran and dwelt there. And the days of Terah were 205 years, and Terah died in Haran. It's kind of interesting that... You have a place called Haran, and then you have a son called Haran, so it gets a little bit confusing. Genesis 11, is 27 to 32 here, is significant because it presents the beginning of the life of a very great man. And I'm so glad in our study we have finally arrived at this point. And that man, of course, was named Abram initially. And then, of course, his name was changed by God himself to Abraham. And we'll discuss that a little bit further along. So this is actually here a transitional passage in the scripture because it takes us from the period of time when God was dealing with the human race as a whole to dealing with just one man and the people who would be born from this one man. Those people, of course, are the Jews who became the nation of Israel. Because God is a God of love and a God of mercy and grace, he reached down to call a man out of a Shemite family. Of course, it had to be, you know, because that was a messianic line. Called him out of a family which, just like the world all around it, this family had sunk to the depths of actually worshiping idols rather than God himself. We know of the sinful condition of Abraham's family because of Joshua's words to the people of Israel shortly before Joshua died. Joshua had said uh, that Terah, the father of Abraham and the father of Nahor, and uh, he went on to say, they served other gods. Notice the pronoun they. He had just said, father of Abraham, father of Nahor, they, rather than he, they served other gods. And then he told the people of Israel, now therefore fear the Lord and serve him in sincerity and in truth and put away the gods which your father served on the other side of the flood, which was speaking of the other side of the Euphrates River, not the great flood, and uh, serve ye the Lord. So from Joshua 24, verse 2, and also verse 14, we know that the family of Abram were worshiping other gods. They were idol worshipers. Another passage which tells us that Abraham and Sarah, his wife, were not selected by God because of anything which commended them to him. You know, he didn't look down and say, oh, there's some good people. I'll use them. There was nothing in them uh, that commended them to him. They were lost as goose, <laughs> geese. But is there anything good? I mean, is that what, what did it with us? This is divine election. I mean, this is God's sovereign choice. He just reached down and pulled these two people out of the miry pit that they were in, put their feet upon a rock and gave them a new song in their heart. Is that what he did to you? Was there anything? It was with me. It is with all of us because there is none good. There's none righteous. There's none that seeketh after God. No, not one. 
It's all of his grace, isn't it? He didn't look down and say, well, that little girl, Catherine, she seems like she's really trying to be a sweet little thing. I think, you know, I think I could use her. It wasn't anything like that. It's just, she's no good, but I'm going to save her anyway. how it is with all of us. Anyway, um, in Isaiah 51, verses 1 and 2, the prophet Isaiah was telling the Jewish people to look back and remember that there was nothing in them that, that made God choose them to be his special people. He said, look back and remember your undistinguished past. He said this, this is his quote, hearken to me, ye that follow after righteousness, ye that seek the Lord, look Unto the rock whence ye were hewn. Look back at the rock out of which ye were hewn. And to the hole of the pit whence ye are digged. And then he says, look unto Abraham, your father, and unto Sarah that bear you. You see, what he was saying is that there was nothing in the ancestry of Israel which would commend her to God. It was all of God's doing. It was his grace which caused him to reach down and call Abraham and Sarah out of that hole of the pit of idolatrous Ur of the Chaldees to build a family from which he would build a nation through which he would bless all the nations, all the people of the earth. So from beginning to end, everything to do with the people of God, both Israel and the church as well, Everything is a work of God's grace. That's why we call it amazing grace. We need to remember that very, very important truth. You know, there's nothing in any of us to commend us to God in his favor. Everything we have, even our faith in him, is merely a product of his incredible grace. So there's nothing of which any of us can boast. Well, let's talk about Ur of the Chaldees a minute. Chaldee was the area of Babylon. Let me show you on a map here. The Chaldees was down here in the lower Tigris-Euphrates River area, right near the Persian Gulf. This area right here was called the Chaldees. Ur was right there on the map. This whole area all the way up the Tigris-Euphrates River Valley, that whole area is called Mesopotamia. Well... Ur of the Chaldees down here was Abraham's original home. It was where he was born, it was where he was raised, and it was where he was married. It has been located by archaeologists to be about 150 miles from the head of the Persian Gulf along that very fertile land of the Euphrates River. Now they say that heavy deposits of silt may have pushed Ur back this far. Her original position may have been right there at the head of the Persian Gulf. It was in uh, generations just right preceding Abraham, it was the most magnificent city in the whole world. It was a center for manufacturing and shipping and farming. I mean, they have found tremendous estates that were irrigated by a very complicated system of canals and ditches that watered big fields of corn and barley and, and palm trees. The homes that they've dug they found were very large and very comfortable. They would have like an average of 13 and 14 rooms. I mean, big homes with uh, plastered walls and whitewashed. I mean, they were magnificent. They were very, 
very modern, contemporary. They made the homes of Babylon, which when they dug those, they thought they were very wonderful, but they made those homes look crude and very modest. And yet the homes in Ur preceded the homes of Babylon by 1,500 years. Now I'm talking about the later Babylon, you know, the the Babylon of, of King Nebuchadnezzar. So the city of Abraham's birth was really quite magnificent. In your notes, I tell you about how it had large libraries. Um, The textbooks that were found for students shows their education system was very advanced. They had business records that they kept for every kind of transaction imaginable. They found that um, bills of lading demonstrated that ships coming up the Persian Gulf were full of copper and ore and alabaster and hardwoods and gold and ivory and all kinds of precious commodities. So these people were, you know, doing pretty well. Yet for all of its wealth and all of its advancements, Ur was steeped in idolatry. The most conspicuous building in Ur, besides its many temples... The most conspicuous building was an, a ziggurat, a ziggurat, excuse me, which was dedicated to the moon god. Some say his name was Nanner, and others say his name was Ur. And so I'm going to give you both names because I'm not sure. But it was dedicated to the moon god. I was reading in the International Standard Bible Encyclopedia, and it talked about how they had uh, dug up this king's tomb and his wife, the queen, and they found all kinds of uh, treasures of gold and silver and semi-precious stones and sculptured animals and copper, and all of these things indicated a culture which was very, very advanced. But in addition to finding all that, they also found in a, an extra little chamber next to where the king and queen were buried that a whole team of oxen had been slain and then they found the bodies of 39 women and one man so it shows us that you know they were very they they were just sick with the sacrifice of human beings what they had done is they had put those people in their lives to die with their king and queen so that I suppose they'd have servants with them in the next world. But it was, it was awful. So no wonder when God would reach down and select a man out of Ur through whom he would begin a new revelation of hope to the world, he said to that man, Get thee out of thy country and from thy kindred and from thy father's house into a land that I will show thee. I mean, you need to understand a little bit about how wicked Ur was. Well, in Genesis 11, 27, we begin to learn of the family ties of Abraham. We've already discussed the fact that his father, his father's name was Terah. And in Hebrew, his father's name, very interesting, means delay. Delay. Terah was an idolater. We've already learned that from Joshua 24.2. In addition, the Jewish Talmud tells us that Terah worshipped no less than 12 gods. So he was really into idolatry. Besides Abram, Terah had two other sons. He had Nahor, who was named for his grandfather. If you look at 
uh, verses 23 to 25. Nahor was named for his grandfather, and he had another son named Haran. And both of Abraham's brothers played significant roles in his life. Haran played a significant role in Abraham's life because of the fact that he died. (laughs) There's Haran. He died and he left behind a son. What was that son's name? Lot. Haran died, we are told, in verse 28, while his father still lived in Ur. This was apparently before Abram received his summons from God to leave Ur. Haran died while he was while they were all still living in Ur. Haran also left behind two daughters, Milcah and Iscah. Look at verse 29. Now Abraham seems to have taken on the responsibility of becoming Lot's guardian after his brother Haran died. Lot as you know, just like Abraham, did become a believer. However, he eventually chose to live in the very wicked Canaanite city called Sodom. Therefore, Lot becomes for us a biblical example of a man who strayed. A man who strayed and he paid, didn't he? A man who strayed and paid. He paid a very heavy price in losing his wife and having his daughters do the awful things that they did. Milcah, who was Lot's sister, one of Lot's sisters, eventually married her uncle, Nahor. Remember, he's Abraham's other brother. And Iscah, who was Lot's other sister, we simply don't know anything about her at all except her name. So Haran was significant in Abraham's life because Abraham became a caretaker of his son Lot. And, of course, because of Lot, Abraham had some extra adventures, didn't he? Well, Nahor, now the other brother of Abraham, as I just mentioned, married Milcah, who was the daughter of Haran, the deceased brother. I remember there was a lot of inbreeding, and this is what caused that um, longevity rate to, to degenerate. Nahor, but remember, too, this is before God made the law against these kind of incestuous relationships. Nahor was significant in the life of Abraham because of the fact that one of his granddaughters, Rebekah, married Abraham's son, Isaac. And two of Nahor's great-granddaughters, Leah and Rachel, married Abraham's grandson, Jacob. Now that gets really confusing, doesn't it? <laughs> What's that song, I'm my own... How, how does that song? I'm my own grandpa. <laughs> um... Oh, and as you know, of course, Nahor's grandson, Laban, played a significant part in the life of Jacob as well, didn't he? So these are why these men, these two brothers, were significant in the life of Abraham. Now, there are a few additional things that we know about Nahor. We know, for example, the name of his eight children from Milcah. The first two were Huz and Buzz. (laughs) 
I know you think I'm kidding, but you can look at Genesis 22, verses 21 and 22. Can you imagine? Us and Buzz. <laughs> Too bad they didn't live in us. <laughs> oh, man. We also know that Nahor had a concubine, naughty man, and through the concubine, he had four more children. So he had a total of 12 children. We know uh, that he did not go with Abram when Abram left Ur of the Chaldees. Instead, for whatever reason, he chose to stay in the very idolatrous city of Ur. Therefore, Nahor is a biblical example of a man who stayed. All right? Lot a man who strayed, Nahor, a man who stayed. Whether Nahor believed in the message of God, which his brother Abram must have revealed to him, we, we do not know. Uh, we do know that idolatry was still an issue in Nahor's descendants because there were false gods, there were idols in the home of Laban. And remember who hid some of those or one of those idols with her when she left her father's home Rachel she hid one of the idols from her father's home to take with her when she and Leah left with Jacob so we know that there was idolatry was still a factor in Nahor's descendants another very important person in the life of Abraham was his wife Sarai whose name was later changed to Sarah by God in verse 30, we are told that she was barren and she had no child. From later revelation, we discover that Sarah was Abraham's half-sister. They both had the same father. Now remember this, Terah was their father, both of them, Sarah and Abram. She had a different mother, but her father was Terah. So what kind of family did she grow up in? An idolatrous family as well in the very wicked city of uh, Ur of the Chaldees well she became Abraham's wife before they left Ur obviously I guess she even became his wife before he got his summons from God to leave well so then God's grace is truly truly seen when we consider the fact that both Abram and Sarai were raised in an idolatrous home in a very idolatrous city and yet both of their names are mentioned in the Hebrews 11 Hall of Faith chapter. And that is, if you think about it, that is remarkable. But it's also very remarkable that God called Abram to be the father of a great nation, but his wife was barren. You know, you can imagine some of the mocking that this man must have received from friends and family because his name was Abram, which means exalted father. And yet Abram unlike his two brothers, was not a father at all. So we learn once again that God's ways are not man's ways and God's thoughts are not man's thoughts. By choosing to bless a barren couple, both of them having been raised in idolatry, the Lord God was going to reveal his amazing grace and his power and his glory. Because Abram exalted father would truly become Abraham which means father of many nations you know I thought about it it's really not a whole lot different the call of Abram 
from the call of Saul. You know, Saul was on his way to persecute Christians. He was not saved by any means. There was nothing in him that commended him to God. But yet God reached down in his grace on the road to Damascus and called him to be, you know, the, probably the greatest man in the New Testament. Abraham's the greatest man in the Old Testament, maybe. At least not, he's one of them. So there's a lot of similarity between the two calls of these great men. Sometime after Haran's death, Abraham did receive a command from the Lord God to leave Ur, which, as I showed you before, was in southern Mesopotamia. And Haran was in northern Mesopotamia. I don't know if you remember that, but they were still both in Mesopotamia. We know of Abram's divine summons while he was still in Ur because of the preaching of Stephen over in Acts chapter 2. I read that to you, but here's what Stephen said right before he got stoned. He said to the Sanhedrin council of Israel, men and brethren, fathers, hearken, the God of glory appeared unto our father Abraham when he was in Mesopotamia before he dwelt in Haran and said unto him get thee out of thy country and from thy kindred and come into the land which I shall show thee then came he out of the land of the Chaldeans and dwelt in Haran it's interesting that Stephen said the God of glory appeared unto our father Abram you know something really dramatic happened in Abram's life to cause him to just pick up and leave. And I just wondered if that was not an appearance of Christ, the pre-incarnate Christ. An appearance of Christ in the Old Testament is called a Christophany or a Theophany. And again, this would compare his experience very much then to the experience of Saul. So while still dwelling with his family, Abraham received this summons, and he stepped out by faith, not knowing whither he went, as it says in Hebrews 11:8, to a land that God would show him. Now, the, the family then traveled approximately 500 miles from Ur to up to the city of Haran. It was about 500 miles. And Haran, by the way, was also a city much like Ur, very, very uh, dedicated to idolatry. So they weren't doing a whole lot better here. Haran also was devoted to the worship of the moon god. They were both into this moon god business. Well, in Haran, Abraham's travels got delayed. What does Terah's name mean, his father? His name means delayed. In Haran, they got delayed. Abraham did because his father Terah delay <laughs> decided that he would move on no further he was going to stay there and so he became a biblical example of a man who stopped we have a man who strayed a man who stayed a man who stopped he got too comfortable in another wicked city and there it was that he died Abraham erred in staying with Haran in his, with his father. He should not, even though his father said, I'm going to stay put, Abraham should have said, no, I've been told to leave Mesopotamia, get you know out. I shouldn't go from one idolatrous city to another. I'm to leave and let God direct me. He should have left, but he didn't. He stayed in with his father and his family. Now, God was really not being cruel 
for asking for such a sharp, sharp separation. You know, when he said, get not only out from thy country, but out from thy um, father's house, away from your family. God was not cruel. He was, as always, being very wise. Because God knew that Abraham's departure from not only wicked, idolatrous Ur, but from his own family, except, of course, for his wife, was necessary, was going to be necessary for his spiritual growth. Sometimes God does that in our lives, you know. Sometimes he has to separate us from maybe not only a location, which is bad for us, but even perhaps from a family. And it might hurt a whole lot. I know it did in my life. But God is wise. He knows what's best. And sometimes he does that intentionally for our own spiritual good. God knew that the environment in Ur and in Haran and Abraham, he also knew that Abraham's association with his family members was not going to be conducive to his own growth. And he proved to be absolutely right, didn't he? Because Terah, Abraham's father, became a hindrance to Abraham's obedience to God. Because Abraham settled, we're not sure how long, but he settled with his father in Haran, another wicked city. So Abraham becomes a biblical example, at least at first, of a man who delayed. We have a man who strayed, a man who stayed, a man who stopped, and a man who delayed. You see, God also knew that Lot would become a hindrance to Abraham. And that's why he had said, you know, get thee out from your family. He should have, he wasn't obedient. But then we have to remember that although Abraham believed God enough to leave his country Ur, or his city, and to start out on his journey, yet at this point in his spiritual growth, he was, I mean, he was very young. So he was very young in this walk with God, and he was not quite yet willing to leave his father, nor was he willing to leave his young nephew, Lot, whom he obviously loved as a son. Because remember, at this point in time, he doesn't have any children of his own. So I'm sure he loved Lot. We know later on he did indeed love Lot. So he wasn't willing to leave his aging father and his fatherless nephew. Now, if Terah had been a godly man who was willing to go with God all the way to where he would lead them, then it may not have been necessary for Abraham to have been separated from him. But Terah did not choose to go all the way with God. He decided to remain instead in another very wicked city. He apparently felt comfortable with pagan society and idolatry. Now, God's call to separation in Abraham's life really should not seem that harsh or unusual to you and I because it is the call of Christ to all of his followers. Do you remember how the Lord responded to a man who had come to him and said he wanted to follow him, but said that, first of all, he had to go and bury his father? Well, if you study that passage, you find out that the man's I mean, you could get real sympathetic. Oh, of course he has to go bury his father. But you find out that the man's father wasn't even dead. And what the man wanted to do was wait around until his father did die so that he would be sure to get his share of the inheritance. Well, what did Jesus say to that man? He said, let the dead bury their dead. But go thou and preach the kingdom of God. 
So he was calling for separation from the spiritually dead. You know, don't waste your life with those who are spiritually dead. Get on about the business of serving the Lord, preaching the gospel. And then another man had come to the Lord and said he wanted to follow him. However, first of all, what did he want to do? He wanted to go and say goodbye to his family. Well, he really didn't want to follow the Lord. He wanted to stay for quite a while with his family. So to him, Christ said, no man having put his hand to the plow and looking back is fit for the kingdom of God. Don't long, in other words, for the old life separate yourself from the old life and move on we know we are also called to be separate because the scripture says be ye not unequally yoked with unbelievers he says come out from among them and be ye what separate saith the lord and then he even talks about hating father mother sister brethren etc parents in comparison, it's not that we are to hate our parents and our family, but our feelings toward them compared to our love for Christ should seem like hate. That's how much more we should love Christ. So remember, the summons of Abraham or the call of Abraham is a starting point only in the life of faith. And the first, the, the first requirement in a life of faith is separation. We are to be separate from the world aren't we? We're in the world, but we're to be separate from the world. Well, God was patient because he knew that Abraham was very young in spiritual things. And after all, you know, his, his background and culture had been totally pagan. And Abraham had a whole lot to learn. We'll be learning about all the things that he had to learn. So there were wasted years in his life. But you know it is possible to redeem those wasted years, the years that the locusts have eaten, and he would eventually redeem his time. Finally, when Terah was 205 years old, God stepped in to remove the hindrance to Abraham's uh, further spiritual growth. And what happened? Terah died. And so I just wanted to close by saying... Please don't be like Tara. Please don't be a hindrance to your own child or grandchild's, maybe even, spiritual walk with God. Um, don't be one who hinders or delays your child's growth for the Lord. You know, and that's very possible. I see it so often where mothers especially... Sometimes fathers, but particularly mothers, want to hold on to their own child. They don't want to let them go. Don't do that. You know, don't, don't delay your own child's spiritual growth. Let them, sometimes they have to flounder, sometimes you have to let them go, and it's very hard, but they need to get out there on their own and learn the lessons that the Lord Jesus wants to teach them. Learn from the examples which are given to us in the scripture, such as the example of Terah. This is why God included these kinds of details.